Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Definition I actually want us to work off of today. Doxology, your opinion of the splendor of God. Your opinion of the glory of the splendor of God. And the song that we just sang is a big song about the splendor of God. In fact, let me just repeat some of the words here. Hallelujah. Holy, holy. Hallelujah, set apart, set apart. God Almighty, the great I am. Who is worthy? None beside thee. The mountains shake before you. I love that imagery. The demons run and flee at just the mention of your name, King of Majesty. And there is no power in hell or any who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I am. By the way, and that statement has application for where we're going to be going in Matthew 22 and 23 today. And that is a doxology song, a big opinion of the splendor of God. By the way, a few words that are important within that song that carry out how our doxology drives our abiding with. Some words in it also say, I want to be close to your side. Do you see what happens? When we see have a big doxology, a big opinion of the splendor of God, what does it do? It actually draws us towards him. I want to be near you, near to your heart. It doesn't cause us to want to go away from. It actually, the bigger our opinion of God is, the greater we want to be near him. The greater we want to be close to him. Oh, by the way, in the song, it also, out of that, out of a big doxology, we want to be near with him. The song also says, loving the world. There is a result that comes out of all that. Uh, Here's what's going on. The doxology thing drives the abiding thing, which drives the overflowing thing, which if you don't remember from our series on the three W's, are posted on our walls. Uh, The doxology thing, the worship of Christ, drives the abiding thing, our walking with Christ, which drives the, the life in and for Christ. And oftentimes, what we think is we think that we need like a to-do list of things, of like a here's step one, step two for your week. Uh, As a church, I want for you to know the thing that we really want to do is not increase our to-do list, but is to increase our doxology of. We want to be a church that is growing as a people together in our understanding, in our opinion of God. And it is out of our growing opinion of God, we will know that we will be drawn to him, and we know that out of all of that, we will be loving others, loving him more and more. It is all about a doxology. A doxology drives things. Doug, why are you bringing this up? 
because one, it's a reminder of what we're about, and two, it's a reminder of what I'm doing here in the closing chapters as we finish out the Gospel of Matthew. Um, these closing chapters, every week my desire would be that we walk away on Sundays in these next two months here uh, through the cross and the resurrection, that we would walk out of this place with a higher opinion of the splendor of God. And not so much, what am I supposed to change or what am I supposed to put into practice this week? Because listen, if we see the Lord bigger, the other things will begin happening. And so just so you know, uh, every week it's going to be uh, the question of, so how does that increase your opinion of the splendor of God? And today we're in uh, chapters 22 and 23, and I want to tell you, it, it increases our splendor and awe and amazement of the wonder of the Lord, because I'm telling you, friends, the Lord lays it out. If you have a Mr. Rogers view of Jesus, it's time to grow in your understanding, if you have the view that Jesus is only love, 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 you are right, but if it is hold, held there and it is just a, a barn, purple Barney and hugs all the time, you need to understand the Lord Jesus Christ is serious about righteousness. And we're going to see it here in this text because he holds these boys accountable. So here we go. Growing doxology drives an abiding life with and for the Lord. Let me pray and ask the Lord's help. Lord, we ask for your help right now. We want to come to grow in you, understand you, see you, have our opinion of you increase this morning. May we walk out these doors with a bigger view of you, a higher opinion of you than when we even came in this morning. And knowing that that opinion of who you are is going to change, is going to impact, is going to drive how we live this coming week. I pray that reality would be true. We need your help. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Matthew 22. Uh, we're there. We're, we've got a lot of text to cover today. Uh, there's going to be some places in here where you're going to like, can we spend some more time on that? And, and I already spent too much time on it in the first service. And so we're going to move through uh, some of these because we're at a high altitude view, okay? We're a high altitude, big picture view. And there are three questions asked of Jesus. And it's not even so much about the questions and the content of the answers as it is about what's happening here in the big view of it. And then three replies by Jesus. Uh, to, to set our uh, kind of our ourselves in the setting of it. Uh, we are at the temple grounds. Uh, back in the day, uh, the, the prior day or two before uh, was a triumphal entry. There was this whole hailstorm of hallelujahs that was taking place as Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a donkey that was pretty short-lived in the reality of it all. But we're on the temple grounds. And, and where does this take place here? Uh, even though Matthew doesn't tell us it takes place on the temple grounds, I think it's most likely the case. Plus, if you look at chapter 24, verse 1, it says, and they were leaving 
leaving the temple. So I think that's where it's taking place. Uh, I want to just show you a little bit of information about the temple ground so you understand and as you build it, we'll be building that out in the coming weeks. Uh, there's the outer courts, which is the court of the Gentiles that you can see here marked on the screens. That area, uh, everyone would come in through the walls, through the main entrances. There are a number of entrances around uh, the temple at that time. Everyone would come in, everyone, Jew, Gentile, everyone could come in and walk through that area. By the way, I love the reality of that imagery. Know this, anyone could enter together. That's a cool reality. And even that's a cool reality in the eternal uh, picture of it all. Uh, you could enter in to the court of the Gentiles. Then you can see uh, that there's actually a little wall that, that marks off between the court of the Gentiles and the inner court there. That was actually a curtain that would kind of be a type of a wall around there. And it is in that green area that, the, that only the Israelites could go into. The Gentiles, everyone would enter through the court of the Gentiles. Then only Israelites could go into the, what is kind of a court that then is prepared to lead inside through the beautiful gate into the temple ground area. We'll get to know that more as we move uh, further through uh, the gospel and the things that take place. I think likely, I bring all this up because I think likely everything that we're about to see here is taking place either in one of those two courts. I'm going to, as we go through this, I've kind of got it like right on the curtain wall, which means it could be either way. It's not that important to just know this. There were crowds there. And so the picture that we have that up on the screens to see, one thing, uh, if I could change, I didn't want to take the time to CG it in, but, but there's a whole bunch of people. You, you can see people scattered around. It kind of looks like it's tourist day at the temple there. Uh, but understand, it's Passover week. And Passover week, it is packed. This whole place is jammed with people, all right? So uh, it's jammed with people. We're picking it up. Uh, after we followed from last week, there were these, uh, Jesus was uh, receiving re words of rejection, and Jesus was giving words of rejection, and we're going to see that continue on. Let, let's move along. Verse 15, chapter 22, I'll begin. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees are kind of uh, key leaders. We've already met them a number of times with it. You have the Herodians. The Herodians we haven't met before. We don't know a whole lot about the Herodians other than their name. Uh, off of this, it means that these were kind of Jewish leaders who had sympathetic ties, if you will, to Rome. Uh, they had a, a sympathetic tie to the Herodian family that was reigning over things. That meant that the Pharisees did not like them uh, because they did not have a love relationship with the Roman and the Herod family. And so yet, here it is, there, you have these two strange bedfellows coming together. They actually totally disliked each other. Let me put it in a modern context. It was like if Democrats and Republicans got together. I mean, can you imagine that? No. But they did here, they had one thing in common. The one thing that they had in common was a dislike for Jesus. They wanted him out. So they come together uh, and they, they form up this question saying, Teacher, we know that you are true. That is true. And we know that you teach the way of God truthfully. That is true. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. 
that's fear of man. In other words, you are not driven by the fear of man. Could you imagine living and living in a society where the fear of others was not a driving force? Uh, that's called heaven. And yet how that is such a thing, and yet Jesus did not live by the fear of what others thought. He lived by truth. For you are not swayed by appearances. Verse 17, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The question is, hey, teacher, what about the taxes? Um, they begin with teacher. By the way, the next two questions begin with teacher. It's an interesting dynamic going on with that in it. I'm not going to delve into it any further. But we find here that uh, they're asking their question. They really don't care about the answer. They're not interested. It's not like, you know what, we've been sitting and we've been interacting together and we have this question about, we live in this world and we have taxes here on earth and should we like pay those taxes or is that wrong to do that? None of that was going on. This is a complete setup. They don't care about the answer. They don't even care about their question. The only thing that they care about is putting Jesus in a corner and trying to embarrass him and shame him and make him look like a fool. And so Jesus replies. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? <laughs> um, the Mr. Rogers Jesus is not that. Understand, it's within a few days of his death. He knows it. Remember, we saw that? He knew everything that is about to take place. He didn't get caught in a corner. He isn't like, you know, oh, gee, coming to find himself. None of that is going on. He knows exactly what's going to go down. And he's been careful over time uh, to, uh, to speak the words that would get him to the cross at the right point of time. And now's the time. And he's laying it on the table with these individuals. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, denarius, a day's wages. It was one coin. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Uh, can you just picture it? He's there in the crowd. He's holding the coin. They know what it is. It's a denarius. Hey, who, whose picture is on, his, and, and on this? And they, all, and they say what? Caesar, Caesar's picture is on this. And then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That's the end of his answer. There are a number of things, if we were at a lower altitude and we were taking smaller sections of Scripture, that we could sit and we could ask questions about with this. Uh, uh, but friends, that's not the point here. That's not even what Matthew wants to have happen here. This isn't opening a subject to let's now go and talk about, should we pay our taxes? Yes. Um, uh, on that, just answered that, I guess. Um, on this, it's, uh, we live in an earthly world right now, and yet, uh, obey the laws, uh, there is a governance in place, and yet, uh, there is a God, and when our governing overtakes God's laws, then there's an issue, I just got off track. What does Matthew want us to know? Matthew wants us to know the next statement, verse 22, when they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. Wait, what just happened? They asked a question, trying to set him up. Jesus answered the question, and, let's, and their doxology changed. See what I'm saying? Their doxology changed. Their actual opinion, their view of the splendor of Jesus just changed. 
they may not have wanted to admit it, but that's exactly what was happening. They had hoped to take him out and crush his legs from un- take his legs out from under him, and yet Jesus, in his response, giving truth of it, and they all marveled and walked away. That's what Matthew wants us to walk away here from this pericope, from this little section here, because there's another question that's going to go, and we're going to see what's going to happen with that. Uh, verse 23, ta- question number two. Teacher, uh, uh, what about... Um, the resurrection. What about the resurrection? So it's the same day. So a little later on, some period of time in the day, the Sadducees came to him. By the way, we, Matthew gives us this parenthetic note, who say that there is no resurrection. In other words, they're, annihil- they're annihilationists. In other words, what they mean by that is that um, in, in this, they believe that when a person dies, they're dead, done, out, over. There is no life after death. Their body's done. There is no soul. And I'm like, seriously, I, I got the hardest time as a human being thinking that that's the case. Because if that's the case, what in the world is going on? And why don't we just let people do whatever they want? And I, don't, I can't go there. They don't believe in a resurrection, and they ask him a question. Here's the question. Teacher, and by the way, this is a bizarre question. Teacher, Moses said, which is true out of Genesis 38, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. Uh, The first married and died, having no offspring, uh, left his wife to his brother. So, too, the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and down to the seventh. And after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she, she be? Really, boys? That's your question? Like this, I'll just say this. By the way, this is commonly the way antagonistic questions go. They grab the extreme, they grab the bizarre, they grab even somewhat the absurd. Why do I say it's absurd? Yes, it was said in Genesis 38, and yet even most interpreters would understand that even in Jesus' day, that practice was actually not being practiced in that day. Am I saying it's a completely invalid question? No. Is it something that could be asked and could be interacted on? Absolutely yes. I'm not saying stay away from some of the things that may confuse us and cause us to go, like they did what? How did that happen? But that is not the purpose. There is no learner's spirit in here. There is no question that's a genuine question to ask. This is a complete setup. And they go bizarre on it. And so they bring up the question of, so a, a guy marries a woman, and, and, and but he dies, and they have no children. And so that she can be able to have Old Testament, have the blessing of being able to carry on a lineage, then it goes to the ne- she goes to the, ne- to the brother, and in that, and then the brother, and then, and then he dies, and she still has no children. Okay, uh, here's another question. I had three brothers, there were three of us. At what point in time do you go, uh-uh? <laughs> I mean, my four brothers before are all dead after her. <laughs> there is some humor in this, okay? Come on. <laughs> in this, and yet that's what they bring up with it. And so the question is, is so whose wife will she be in, in the resurrection? That's ironic because they don't even believe in the resurrection. The absurdity of what's going on here is nothing short of absurd. They're really not interested in asking the question. They're trying to set Jesus up for what's going on. I wonder if Jesus is going to have an answer. Verse 29. 
Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. By the way, friends, saying that to the Sadducees who are kind of spiritual leaders of the day in the priestly family of things, that is a profound and bold statement of what's going on. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Verse 30, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what is said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And how do they walk away? And when the crowd heard it, they were what? astonished at his teaching. I'm telling you, in this, you, just, you can just sense the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians walking away from this just like going, we're the brainiacs, and this dude is some country bumpkin from Nazareth, and we can't get him. Man, bad day. Everybody else is walking away with a higher opinion of the splendor of Jesus. Everyone who is around and hearing this is in a place where it's like, whoa, that guy, that country bumpkin from Nazareth, he can take on the PhD professors. And we clearly see that Jesus has upped the response to them in a way of confronting their pride and their arrogance. This is no Mr. Rogers Jesus, that's for sure. Question number three, teacher, what about the greatest? But when the Pharisees, verse 34, heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, (laughs) they gathered together Was that the Pharisees and the Sadducees there? I'm not quite sure in the grammar of it. Was it just the Pharisees? Doesn't matter. Whoever gathers together. And one of them, a lawyer, no lawyer jokes, asked him a question to test him. I would say this. It's good to send the lawyer in, the lawyer-minded one, the one who gets how things work. Send the lawyer in. He's used to this. And ask a question to test him. Again, they're really not interested in his answer. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? You, you may go, that's kind of an odd question. It actually, in the day, it was not an odd question. Just slightly here, a, a brief context. What was going on in the day uh, of all these individuals, particularly with the Pharisees and their structure, they literally were taking Old Testament uh, commands of God. They had put them all together and added like piles of commandments on it. It was no longer God's commandments. It was this legalistic, contrived set of commandments. And in that day, they were literally trying to order them in order. Why would you want to order them? You'd want to order them because you want to know what the big ones are and what the little ones are. You you want to know what the big ones are and the little ones are, maybe for yourself, but for them and the way they were wired to be able to, to take people to task. 
And so they literally had these discussions and debates about, is that one uh, uh, up higher in the top 10 versus the top 20? Or what's going on with what God commands to be done? And they had this ridiculous conversation, and that's why this comes out. So they're debating all this stuff, so they're like, let's have him answer it for us. So teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, verse 37, You shall love the Lord, agape, it's a covenant love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. In other words, you can't leave that one alone. There has to be this one along with it because the two flow into each other. You shall agape, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There's so many things we could talk about with this reply. I will simply say this, though. Life is about relationship. Life is about relationship. If you take a look at this, Jesus is saying, here's here's the most important thing. Relationship with God and relationship with people. That's it. Life is about relationship. Isn't it interesting how we make relationship fit in to the sections of life that have we have available gaps? Friends, there is a thing in here for us to not be so hard on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and them because there is them in us. We have this way of fitting God and relationship with him and with people around the available times and slots that we have for all the other things to do. I just want to ask, might we think about this? This isn't saying be a people person. For the person who says, well, I'm not a people person. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about understanding that life is about relationship with the Lord and life is about relationship with others. You don't have to be a people person to do relationship with others. And by the way, it's not a request, it's not a suggestion, it is a what? Uh, Note, after Jesus says it, there is no comment about anybody. I I would, if if I would, if... Matthew would have had it in the day, in parentheses after it, I would put mic drop. Like you just ask three questions. Hey, what about the taxes? Hey, what about the resurrection? Hey, what about the order of God's commands? Reply, reply, reply. It's like Matthew doesn't even need to tell us what happened. Because of the prior two, these are moving together. When you're doing an overarching movement on the big of the whole, you see these themes that are moving. And it's not about each one of these individuals, it's about the movement of them. And in fact, let's carry that, because now things turn. This point is not just a mic drop point, it's a turning point in what happens. Follow me, we'll see this. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. So he's like, okay, you had your chance. You had your chance, you had your chance, you had your chance. I have a question. What do you think about the Christ? By the way, Jesus is the Christ. The Christ is a title, it's not his last name. It's the Messiah. It's who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? 
And he, Jesus, is asking the question. By the way, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Where does this question come out of? The question comes out of in the day. Uh, the, well, the reply is the son of David. And they are right, but they are also wrong. And Jesus knows it. Why are they wrong? Because the common reality in that day in how people viewed that statement was coming out of a descendant line of things, what would take place is they would look at and they viewed David as the ultimate and the Messiah would come out of the descendant of David. And the idea at the time was that essentially David was the great king and then the Messiah would come later on and actually the Messiah had a sense at the time of being a little like David in the mold of David, but David was the great one and we'll have another one like that that's actually a little less than that. That was the idea there. And so Jesus knows that, that when they say the son of David, it's not said with a high opinion of that title term. It's actually said with a too low opinion of the title term. And so Jesus answers them to what they are saying and he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, calls him Lord. In other words, guys, how are you thinking that he's less than David when David is calling this one Lord and higher than? Uh, He uses scripture. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? We could talk about this further, but I'm not gonna take the time because the next verse is the critical verse. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him more questions. Hey, you want to ask him a question? No way, man. <laughs> you want to ask him? Come on, you're bold. You ask me. Uh-uh. He took out the PhD professors. Friends, that's why that was a mic drop moment. Because from here now, Jesus is done with the questions because they're done with the questions. And by the way, no one was able to answer him a word to his question, which is a really sad thing. They didn't, they couldn't answer the question of what they thought about the Messiah and whose son is he. And wouldn't you think that the spiritual leaders, the PhD leaders, wouldn't you think that they should be able to answer it and they couldn't answer it rightly? Why? Because they had a low opinion of the Christ. And even in all the rejection, even in all the reality of the fact that they don't get who Jesus is, how wonderful is this? The one who is rejected goes to the cross for those who are rejected. Hey, Pharisees, what about the Christ? I'm going to read the, next, the entire chapter, chapter 23. If you have a red letter edition Bible, that means that all the words in red are the words that Jesus said. And I want for you to just listen to what Jesus says, because friends, this is serious. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat, 
So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice hypocrisy. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. What's that saying is these are the ones who tell everybody what to do, lay the guilt and the weight on them, and it's like, do this, do this. They don't even do it. And when they say do it, they don't even lay a finger to help them do it. They do all their deeds, verse 5, to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. That was clothing that was weird. You know, they, they, they would, uh, the spiritual part of the clothing, things with the prayers and so forth, and it would be, they would make it really big and shiny so people would go, ooh, he's super religious. And I'm sure they said it just like that. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. These are principles, okay? We don't get legalistic about these. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Wow, that turns everything upside down and inside out. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Here we go. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Before I read the rest, remember, we are on the temple grounds. The people are gathered around. Jesus is there. He's already the day before laid staked his claim in the temple grounds. And now he is laying it out for the leadership of it all. This is war to war. Nothing short of that. Anyone who makes these kinds of declarations would end up dead. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straightening out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 
For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgent. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outly appear before beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Just real quickly on that one, we don't understand whitewashed tombs. What would happen in the time right before Passover, there was a day in the year, like a week or two weeks before the, the whole Passover, and what would happen is, is back in that day, they didn't have cemeteries that were like kind of organized together. When someone died, they would bury them like just there. And so what would happen is there's these, uh, there was these graves all over the place and they would put stones and in the day, part of the structure was is if you would touch one of the stones, you would become unclean and that would mean you would go into Passover unclean. And so what they would actually do is back in that day, so essentially they would like acid wash the tombs so that as people walked, they could see them. So they are white stones on these tombs so that they could see them, not accidentally step on them. And what's inside the white, beautiful white stone? Dead body. And Jesus is saying, you're like that. You whitewash the outside, but the fact of the matter, it's all dead on the inside. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Do you get the idea Jesus is upset? Man. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, you, 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 you snakes of snakes. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bariachah, and whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Whoa! That's in the text. I don't think we grasp the magnitude of what is happening right here. This is the time. Jesus knows exactly where all of this is going, and he's laying it on the line. And he is actually loving on these individuals, helping them to understand blind guides People, you need to understand they are leading you like blind guides. See what's going on and be very aware. Because the consequences of it are significant and severe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Might I say this? It is a passage like this that makes Revelation 19 make sense. When Jesus 
on a white horse, the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ returns to judge and make war. This is the one. May it be a reminder to us, let us be careful. Job 38, verses 2 and 3. Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, Job. I will question you, God says, and you will make known to me. Job 40, verse 2. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. I'm just saying this. Listen, the Psalms talk over and over again about God. What's going on? Lord, what are you doing? Why does this happen? And why does that happen? Genuine questions of of wanting to understand who God is, wanting to learn what Scripture has to say about, are invited in Scripture, are welcomed in Scripture, and yet in it, the fact of the matter is, as mankind, we oftentimes get so arrogant in our thinking and our position that we think God has to answer to us. Be careful. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Farmers get that image right there. Is the hen, come here chickies, come on. That's kind of how it is, isn't it? Here chickens. You're like, no, no. We don't want to. No, but I want to. No, I'm good on my own. Verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May we walk out today with a higher opinion of the splendor of the Lord. Father, I thank you so much for the, the tension that we, we, we sense, we feel, we realize in the reality that, that you are a loving God and yet in that loving God reality, you are a holy God and, and we are held to account. The scripture tells us that. That on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Oh God, I would ask that we would be humbled, that we would realize that you are God of all things. You are the God of creation. You are the God who holds it together. And yet we live in this place to where, man, we have questions, Lord, and we don't get things, and we wonder, and we struggle, and we're confused. We are like little chicks that are lost so often. And the Apostle John, who was there at this very event, Later we learn in Revelation chapter 1 that he sees you, the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ. And instead of running up and giving you a high five, treating you like you're just some good buddy, he falls face down thinking he's going to die because of the greatness and the grandness and the gloriousness of you. And yet, Lord, we're not to be in a sense of fear that leaves us in that way because we're told that you reach out your hand, your right hand, you put it on John's shoulder, and you tell him, John, fear not, for I am alive forevermore. I've risen from the dead. And Lord, that is the truth of it. There is a fear 
that is to be had because of who you are. And yet in it, there is the reality of your love and your grace that is available to all. Father, I pray if there's a person in this room who's just not sure where they are at in relationship with you, if they don't know that they know that they know that they have a relationship with you, oh God, I pray that they would ask. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A higher opinion of you In the splendor of your name we pray.